Welcome to Playback, a variety podcast. On today's show, we're talking about standouts from the Toronto Film Festival and what movies might win the coveted People's Choice Award there. A little bit later, I'll be talking to Ewan McGregor about his directorial debut, American Pastoral, which premiered in Toronto last week. So stick around. Okay, hello everyone. I'm here with Janelle Riley, who is fresh back from Toronto. Not fresh. I'm exhausted. <laughs> uh, I, I lucked out. Didn't have to go. Oh, I love Toronto, but it is literally. I yet last night I hit that point where my eyes were pounding from mm-hmm. exhaustion. I was just so tired, but yeah. you know, champagne problems. Totally. Well, you mm-hmm. saw some good movies. I did. What's, I was, the, what's your favorite one you saw? Boy, that's a tough one. I mean, there is really a three-way race in my heart between La La Land, Moonlight, and Nocturnal Animals. Mm -hmm. Nocturnal Animals was probably the biggest surprise. I loved Tom Ford's Single Man. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's been seven years, and I've been waiting for his follow-up movie. Has it been that long? It has, yeah. Uh, And by the way, after I saw the movie, I went and purchased some Tom Ford makeup, and it's fantastic. Um, So if they want to send me anything free... Yeah, I'm I'm sitting here wondering what kind of a plug that was. (laughs) I just didn't intend to. I was like, everyone looked so good in Nocturnal Animals, and then I found out he had a makeup line, and I was at the department store, and I just, I was like, I want to look like Amy Adams, (laughs) which is pretty much true of any movie, but but specifically in this movie, it looks fantastic. I feel like sometimes... You feel like there's a movie that was just sort of made for you, yeah. you know, and Nocturnal Animals just, just checked off all my boxes. Wow. Um, let alone, actually, I think the first time I really got to know you, we bonded over our mutual love of Michael Shannon. Of course. He's the best. He's, he showed up at his premiere, with, or wherever he was, with his Hawaiian shirt. Did you see the photos? Oh, yes. You should see what he wore to our studio. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. No, he's the best. And we'll finally get an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor since, uh, I guess, Revolutionary Road was his last nomination. Should have been nominated last year. A lot for of goodwill left over from last year. Yeah, and it's a fantastic so. performance. Yeah, I, hear, I, I haven't seen the film yet, but I, I do hear he steals his scenes. Yeah. So, uh, as only he can. But regarding Amy, I mean, she's got a pair of movies in, in the race, and both of them were at Toronto. Arrival premiered in Venice, went to Telluride. We spoke to her last mm-hmm. week on the podcast. And... Uh, you know, two very different performances, uh, I would imagine. Obviously, I haven't seen Nocturnal, but uh, in Arrival, uh, she's she's pretty staggering. Um, th- just the level of control that she has in, in this role of, of uh, who is going to become a mother. Yes. It's, it's, uh, as I was joking with her, it's hard to talk about that movie without ruining it. I know. I'm trying to be very careful. Um, but between these two movies, why don't you talk about the, the two performances and where do you sure. think the strong suits are? Well, it's interesting because I think Nocturnal Animals... Actually, I don't know how the world is going to respond to Nocturnal Animals. I know I loved it. A lot of people loved it. I honestly don't know how it's going to play in mm-hmm. the rest of the world or how it will... I think it'll be a pretty big factor in the Oscar race. Um, so it might be the more Oscar-friendly movie, but I actually think her performance in a rival might get more attention for her. Mm-hmm. Um, Nocturnal Animals is very stylized. She's very good. Like, don't get me wrong. This mm-hmm. is totally, like, a wonderful choice to have to make. But I do think Arrival, there is so much heart and emotion where she has to be very restrained in Nocturnal Animals. I also think, um, and you might be able to speak to this better than I can, you know, uh, there's a lot of love for Arrival, and it is not a traditional sort of movie that you see in the Oscar race. So it might be sort of fun to reward her there. Yeah. But at this point, it's, I mean, look, I just was looking at tweets I sent out a year ago. I honestly thought that there would be a problem deciding if Kate Blanchett would get nominated for Truth or Carol. Yeah, me yeah. too. <laughs> See, okay, I loved Truth. I thought she was great in Truth. I really thought she was fantastic in yeah. Truth, and I thought she might get nominated for that, and we were staggeringly wrong. Yeah, happens. It happens. It does a lot with me. Believe it or not. Um, you know, the Toronto Audience Award is something to talk about, by the way, because yes. every year it's uh, it's a good indication of what is playing broadly, what is playing well to a, a broad cross-section of people, which is instructive as it pertains to the Academy. Last year, Room won. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people still didn't give it its due as the season progressed and said, oh, it's oh, yeah, people, people aren't going to watch that yeah. movie, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then it gets not only picture, but director, and obviously Brie Larson wins Best Actress. Uh to my view, it seems like this This is probably between a couple of movies. La La Land, which started in Venice, went to Telluride, went to Toronto. 
<laughs> everyone that sees it is in love with it, obviously. Sure. I said to Damien Chazelle yesterday, oh, God, it was only yesterday. <laughs> um, I said, look, there might be people who La La Land is not their thing, mm-hmm. but I can't imagine anyone hating this movie. And yeah. if they do, they might be a serial killer. Yeah, right. Because it is so joyous and fresh and you can look at it in a jaded way and say well sure they got Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone and they made a musical so you know they it's Oscar bait but no way on paper oh, was yeah. that Oscar bait when people signed up to finance it. It's a it. subversive musical. Very I mean he completely so. flips the genre on its ear in some ways and uh, you know, it's 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 a uh, an expressionistic musical. It's amazing. It's a wonderful film, and and you don't like musicals, do you? Not really. Yeah. To be perfectly I, honest, I mean, although that said, Singing in the Rain is one of my favorite movies of all time. But how can it not be? Also very subversive. Yeah. That's yeah. It's a great movie. It's um, interesting because when I saw La La Land, I said, I think people who don't generally like musicals are actually really going to love this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then people who do like musicals, I'm very curious to see how they respond. Now, I love musicals, mm-hmm. as you know, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. So maybe they'll embrace it. But it is not, even though it takes its homages from, you know, big MGM musicals, um, it's not like a traditional musical in any way. I think that works for it. Oh, one, personally. Yeah. I was going to say 100%, but you make fun <laughs> of me when I say that. But 100%, I agree with you. You're allowed one or two per podcast. Okay, we'll keep track. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that somebody on Telluride was making the case to me that the fact that it was not particularly in the vein of traditional musicals that, that will hurt it in the race. And I'm just thinking that would have just set it up to be compared yeah. to, you know, whatever, Sound of Music, blah, blah, blah. But like, this is its own thing. And, uh, you know, I, I, have, I can't imagine it not going very far this season. And Talk- that could include winning the Audience Award. Yeah, so. I I agree. I think it's between La La Land and Moonlight. And Moonlight is my other another one I have here. I saw that in Toronto or Tell Your Ride. Uh, obviously, a very different movie, yeah. uh, but a, a movie that I think it affects everyone who sees it. It it's 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 uh, Peter de Bruges and I spoke about it last week, but it's the direction is really staggering. The performances that Barry Jenkins is able to get out of this cast. And the way it's just his story laid bare. And, you know, we'll see how it goes. I'm sure that uh, Toronto would probably rather have, like, a world premiere win the Audience Award, like Lion. Very interesting. Which, Lion was the one movie I did not see. I'm hearing great things about. Something interesting, you might already know this, but Naomi Harris, uh, who's the only person in all three segments Mm -hmm. in Moonlight, Moonlight, came into our studio and, you know, she shot her scenes in three days. Yeah, it's crazy. And I assume that meant that she shot scenes from the first segment one day, the middle segment the next day. No, she would say she started off the morning in old age makeup, did the middle scenes, did the beginning scene, because it was all based on location. Mm -hmm. And then would... the day in old age makeup again and that just adds a whole because I asked her I said do you want to talk about the fact you only shot it in three days because you know um, are you afraid people might sort of like be dismissive and be like well you know it's it's only a three-day performance we should nominate it uh and she was like no she was more than happy to talk well about let's it. be clear she flew in from the junket for bond in Mexico City to South Florida to shoot those three days mm-hmm. so she was in a completely other headspace yeah. that makes the performance that much more uh amazing to me and I actually interviewed her during Tor- or right before Toronto, and we spoke about that. And uh, I think she's a lock for a nomination. Oh, I do too. And it's interesting because another lock for a nomination is Michelle Williams in Manchester yes. by the Sea. And again, not a lot of screen time, but what they do in that oh. screen time is phenomenal. Can we talk about Amazon putting that clip out there? I didn't know they did. They've released the... Unless I'm mistaken. I, I, I I've been off the grid for five days. This, but they, I know they screened the clip of Mich- Michelle's big moment in Manchester by the Sea at CinemaCon and Oof. now it's used in the trailer a little bit and now they've released this clip and it's it bugs me because it's a moment you have to yep. build to I the mean emotion on one has hand to stack up I, I guess anything that gets people to see the movie and anything that sells that performance is good but yeah I, I don't I don't want them to give that away yeah I can't imagine Kenneth Lonergan is happy with that yeah <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I was at the Nocturnal Animals screening where the screen went black for oh. three minutes. I don't know if you heard about that. Yeah, I did. And I Mass literally, hysteria. yeah, I literally think I heard a head roll because you know what a perfectionist Tom Ford is. Well, yeah, is. I'm sure Tom was upset about yeah. that to say the least. But what a testament to the movie and how great it was that we were all just like, first we thought it was part of the movie, mm-hmm. you know, like oh, what what brilliant thing has he done here? Mm-hmm. And then we were just we were just like you know on the edge of our seats, like bring it back. That reminds me of the time that I saw Che 
and the subtitles didn't work for like 20 minutes. Oh my god! And none of us thought that that was a mistake. Everyone just yeah. thought, oh, this is just Soderbergh. Like, yeah, being you'll, you'll, Soderbergh. You'll keep up. And then the movie stopped, and the guy came in and said, oh, sorry, the subtitles weren't working. And we were like, oh, okay. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> Got it. Um, Snowden yes. premiered in Toronto. Uh, Oliver Stone, it also played at Comic-Con, which was what? an interesting place to screen it. Yeah. And they had a big panel there where he made headlines with his Pokemon sure. Go stuff. He's, he's got great sound bites. Like, he came in, yeah, and I does. asked him if, you know, he, he's become more paranoid since making Snowden and, like, covering the camera on his phone. And he's like, well paranoia implies that I might not be right. (laughs) Oh, by the way, Oliver Stone in our studio um, basically production designed his own shots. Really? When we were doing the interview, he he had us film him and then he got behind the camera, checked it out, made sure the lighting was good, made sure he was seated in the right place. Um, And you can make fun of him if you want, but it looked terrific. (laughs) And he was very sweet about it. Well, he knows what he's doing. Yeah, he does. Um, I like that movie a lot. It's very entertaining. It's very un Oliver Stone in some ways because it's, uh, I don't want to say that it's anonymous, but it just has a slicker sheen Mm -hmm. than his movies tend to have. Uh, It doesn't, you know. Again, it's. I don't mean this to sound like a knock. See, I do think it feels like an Oliver Stone movie, like one he would have made in the 80s. Um, I think it's his best movie in 25 years, since JFK. Uh, in wow. telling the story of a... Well, that's kind of faint praise, let's be honest. Well, I'm just trying to think what's happened in the last Savages, years. Savages, um, I was not a Nixon, fan of. Nixon, uh, I love. Nixon has very good performances, but I... I think it's his best film since JFK. Oh, Any Given Sunday. I'm a huge fan oh, of Oh, you know Given what? Sunday. I do love that movie. Yeah. Yeah. But it, I do think it's an Oliver Stone film in that um, it surprised me in learning what a patriot Edward Snowden was. Mm-hmm. You know, in that he wanted to be a Marine mm-hmm. before an injury mm-hmm. sort of forced him to the sidelines. And it made me think of, you know, Ron Kovic in uh, Born on the Fourth of July or Charlie Sheen's character in Platoon. You know, these people who went into something very raw, raw mm-hmm. America and, you know, sort of got turned around. Have their world views challenged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, every time I look at my computer, I think that I need to put something on the camera. Oh, I did. Because I, I saw, I also saw Black Mirror, the new season. Oh, yeah. And yeah, there's, I am terrified to turn on my phone at this point. Oh, God. Speaking of, there is an Oscar worthy performance in uh, this new season of Black Mirror from Bryce Dallas Howard in uh, an episode directed by Joe Wright called Nosedive. Oh, yeah? That, yeah, you just have to see. Bryce Dallas Chastain? (laughs) Well, you know, I uh, first, (laughs) this is a total name-droppy story, but I have to tell it. I was at the airport with her yesterday. Bryce. Yeah, uh, sorry, with Bryce. And the woman's checking her ticket was looking at her and going, do you use a stage name? (laughs) And she's like, uh, and she knew exactly what was happening. They're both used to that. They, yeah, they, and they she's like, well, who, who do you think I am? And the woman was like, and she actually, Bryce filmed this little interaction with the woman, and I think she's going to post it on social media. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, it, like, it happens all the time. Um, and then, like, I was standing waiting for her outside of customs, and a couple people came up to me, and they were like, um, your friend, is, is, is she the one from Zero Dark Thirty? <laughs> yeah, it was. Poor girls. And by the way, you know how much I hate to fly. And I need to be uh, like very um, um, filled with Xanax in order right. to get on a plane. <laughs> and I got to give a shout out to Bryce Dallas Howard because she kept me so calm and collected. And we got on the plane, and you know, I said goodbye because she was in first class, obviously. <laughs> and it was the most relaxed I've ever been on a flight. Good. I'll probably need to talk to her next time I get on a plane. Though. <laughs> Let's talk about Jackie, which was sure. the big acquisition out of the festival. Uh, Fox Searchlight picked it up after being involved in the development of the movie. So glad they years did. Years ago, it's a perfect home for them. I mean, Darren Aronofsky, who produced Jackie, mm-hmm. uh, did not direct it, uh, and Natalie Portman. They obviously collaborated on Black Swan very mm-hmm. successfully for Fox Searchlight. Yeah, yeah. And Pablo Lorraine is the director. Just had a tribute in Telluride. And had two movies. Two at movies. Toronto. Neruda was the other one. Uh, and you know, can I say something gossipy? Oh, please. Neruda stars Gael Garcia Bernal, who used to date Natalie Portman. Oh my gosh! Yeah, the connections are amazing. <laughs> I know. Well, tell me about Natalie's performance. I haven't seen the movie yet. But. I mean, she's great. And here's, the, you know, the truth is, I somehow missed the whole Kennedy Camelot thing. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not as fascinated by them as a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's an age thing or just that I think quote-unquote royalty is silly, uh, but she is really amazing. I mean, it's a great study of grief. It's just a powerful, you know, you believe her as a mother, you believe her as a first lady, as this, you know, widow. Um, yeah, I, it's it's interesting. Even though we know what the story is, I kind of don't want to give away too much. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm curious why it 
took so long for someone to pick it up? I mean, is, does it is it an esoteric an esoteric film? No, is I think it? it's actually really commercial. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it was actually to be honest, it was the one thing that people were really saying they really wanted to see after you know, obviously La La Land. Yeah. Um, I remember uh, uh, talking to some critics who got shut out of the first press and industry screening because it was so full and it was in their biggest theater. Yeah, it's uh, it's rare for a movie nowadays to get picked up in Toronto and get turned around as a t- as a contender. It mm-hmm. happened with The Wrestler a number of years ago. It happened with Still Alice a couple of years ago. Um, but you know, obviously, I think with with just the turmoil surrounding Birth of a Nation, Searchlight would probably like to have something else to play with this sure. season. So uh, good for them that they have something else to work with. But uh, yeah, it's it'll be very interesting to see Natalie Portman back in the race. Yeah, I mean, uh, she's great. Last time we saw her in the race, she was pregnant on stage, winning an Oscar, and That's looking amazing. Right. So, uh, yeah, great. Well, and you know, I actually went to the Birth of a Nation screening mm-hmm. in Toronto, even though I'd already seen the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have to say, it played great. Did it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I read the stuff about the standing ovations and everything. Although, it, let's be honest, everything in Toronto, people give standing ovations. It's so true. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Uh, I, st- I, I do still love that film. And I will say that in my circles, just kind of my conversations with Academy members, more often than not, people are more concerned with what the movie's going to be, and they want to separate art from the artist. We'll see how it plays out. I'm sure we'll be talking about it all season. Do you think but having uh, Mel Gibson in the race this year helps or hurts Nate Parker? It's interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's certainly interesting. Uh, our editor, Andy, wrote a, a piece about that recently. Um, it's it will present the idea of hypocrisy mm-hmm. pretty starkly, I think. Uh, and regarding that film, Mel Gibson's film, Hacksaw Ridge, which played Venice and only Venice, um, great movie. I have no doubt. I mean, he is a really good filmmaker. Yeah. I really liked Apocalypto. I, I did too. Yeah. I, I think he's a fantastic filmmaker. I, I think that The Passion of the Christ is an amazing film. Never seen it. Really? Never will. Because you don't want to deal with... I, you know, I have issues with torture on film. It's well, then, yeah, you should yeah. skip the passion. Yeah. Christ. <laughs> torture and um, hurting dogs will turn me off to any movie. Stay away from White God, then. Did you oh, see White God? I did. <laughs> so, you know, they did not sell that movie fairly. Oh, good God! That was one of my favorite movies of last year, though. And well, hey, look, I like Amoris Peros, so I there. guess there are exceptions. I guess so. Well, then let's 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 make a a declaration what's going to win that people's choice prize because that is going to you know recent winners are the king's speech slumdog millionaire uh what else gosh uh room we said mm-hmm. uh pretty argo decent came track in second argo to came in second lining's to silver linings yeah um i really don't know right now i i kind of want to say moonlight because yeah. i feel like it's there's something about the number of theaters they play in, too. Yeah, I know. It's regarding hard the vote to totals. tell. I mean, La La Land, it's going to be La La Land or Moonlight is my guess. And I kind of feel like, again, it's wrong of me to say that La La Land is the obvious choice because it's the one everyone loves and it's mm-hmm. so accessible. Uh, when I do think it was made from a place of like, I'm making this movie for me, you know, mm-hmm. and hopefully other people will like it. But um, I just think, I don't know. I mean, like seeing people's reactions to Moonlight like, pe- like grown the Q and A's were emotional, weeping. from what I can yeah. discern. I mean, that's and I just don't think there's anything. Well, it's not fair for me to say there's nothing else there out there like it because of the same could be said of La La Land. Yeah, yeah. You say Moonlight, I'll say La La Land. I we'll think that's a good idea. Happens. And then I would not rule out Nocturnal Animals, but that might be wishful thinking. Yeah, but wishful thinking helped last year when my favorite movie of the year, Room, won. There you go. Yeah. Well, another movie that played Toronto, we're going to get into with uh, the interview section here in a minute, was American Pastoral, Ewan McGregor's directorial debut. I'll be talking to him in just a little bit, so stick around for that. Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with Ewan McGregor, the star and director of American Pastoral. Ewan, thank you for being here today. My great pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is uh, your directorial debut. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. My first feature film, I did a short film a long, long time ago, but it was very, like, literally very short. And um, <laughs> this was my first uh, feature film, yes. And uh, a long time in the coming. I've been wanting to do it for a a long, long time, but uh, was waiting to find the right story. I well, guess. I was just going to ask. I assume you've wanted to do it for a while. So, what was it about this material that said, "Okay, this is the one"? 
Well, I was attached to this as an, uh, as an actor to play the Swede for, I think, maybe three years or maybe over three years. And uh, we kept we kept we, we, we kept having um, we kept losing directors a bit like the drummer and Spinal Tap. They would sort of follow it. <laughs> no one died. I'm pleased sure. to say. But um, it was one of those situations where it's happened to me before in movies where after two or three uh, hit and misses like that, usually you think it's not going to happen and you let it go. And I didn't ever let this one go. I didn't. I couldn't somehow. I wanted to play the Swede so badly. And then um, when it really looked like it wasn't going to happen after about three years, I suddenly, uh, I suddenly thought, well, maybe, uh, you know, so this, is, this could be the one I've been waiting for. I've been waiting for the right story to tell as a director. I didn't want to direct just for the sake of doing it or to say that I, I was a director or I've done it, but I wanted to do it because I had a story that was burning to tell. And I realized uh, the, the closer this film got to disappearing that this, this was the one. And um, why that is, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's an, it, it touched me very deeply, the story. I, I'm a father of girls. I've got four girls. This is very much a story about a family, about a father and a daughter. And um, it came about, I, I suppose, round about the time my eldest daughter was about to leave home. I think when I first read the script, she would have been about 14, 13 or 14. So it must have been on my mind I, I, and I've only realized this in retrospect, but I think it must have been in my mind, this idea that of losing a daughter somehow. And of course, in our story, it's a very extreme example of that. Um, the family lose their daughter to radicalism. She becomes radicalized, politically radicalized, and, and disappears into the underground. And, and um, so that's a very extreme example of loss, whereas I suppose I must have been sort of contemplating the loss of my, my daughter out of the house, of her going to college and, and not waking up in the same house as us anymore. Um, and now, you know, since we made the movie and she's now 20 and she has left. So, uh, you know, I, I think maybe that's why it connected to me so much uh, early on. Yeah, you, you actually completely saw a question coming, which was regarding the fact that you're a father. I mean, I'm, I'm a new father, actually, so oh, yeah, your film terrified me. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, you know, without giving too much away, it is. It's, it's essentially about a father who is helpless to affect the path that his daughter is taking, mm -hmm. essentially, and just kind of that how that helplessness eats at him is what I was taking away from it. So yeah. uh, I was going to ask you, being a father of daughters, uh, what that element of the story meant for you. And mm. so clearly it, it was... Well, a it's sort of everything. I mean, I told my eldest daughter when she came to visit while we were shooting the film in Pittsburgh, and I said to her, you have you taught me everything I needed to know to make this movie. And um, she did, really. I, I, it's difficult. To, you can't put your finger on what exactly it is because it's a great many things. Roth, Philip Roth in his novel explores to great depth a whole range of um, issues and thoughts and arguments if you like and and um, the one I, the, the extraordinary thing is that he's not a father you know Philip Roth has written this really accurate story about parenting and parenting in the 60s you know in the late 50s 60s the Swede is sort of rather a modern father in many ways and um, he writes about the, the structure between the, f the father and the daughter and the mother and the daughter and the mother and the father. And, and those are very uh, recognizable uh, things. I, I, I recognize lots of them from my life. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's, very, it's, a, it's very deep and broad, so it's difficult to put your finger on exactly, exactly what that is. Yeah. And I feel like uh, Roth can be tricky for filmmakers to tackle. Uh, I think some have struggled with his work in the past. I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's not like overtly cinematic on the page per se or, or anything. Did you find any particular challenge when you were setting out to to adapt his work as a film? I mean, my challenge was to try and do it justice. I thought I, when I came to the project as director, the script was already in a very good form. John Romano wrote a really beautiful adaptation of the novel, and there wasn't really a very, there wasn't a great deal of work for me to do on that uh, script. Uh, of course, there was little changes here and there that we worked on together, but the but the the film that you see is very much the the script that he wrote that I was presented with, and um, I thought he did a really fine job of of trans posing the novel on, in, onto, the, onto the page. And my job was to make that onto the screen and to try and do justice to his work, John Romano's, but, and, but also Philip Roth's. And I tried to do that by 
not getting not not being too um, intimidated by the idea that Philip Roth had written the novel, which of course is quite an intimidating thought, and just to think of it simply what it is, and the, and um, I felt that very much it was it was a story about a family. It was very much a story about a father and a daughter, and the mother and a daughter, and and something happens in their family that they have to deal with, and it's an exploration of how they deal with that. And then on a broader sense, I felt like it's a story of America. It's the story about America. It's about post-war American hope and aspiration being decimated by the 60s and Vietnam and, and a new generation who felt, like rev- who felt that, um, that, that things could, radical change was just imminent, you know. And uh, so I tried to do justice to both those things. Sometimes I would concentrate purely on the sort of family story, and other times, and maybe more in the edit room, I suppose, try and bre- broaden it to become a story of America, because I think that's what Roth is talking about. Mm-hmm. You're a, a veteran, obviously, but nevertheless, was there anything that uh, completely surprised you about finally jumping into the director's chair yourself on a feature? No, it was as scary as I thought it would be. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite... Um, I don't think there was any major surprises. I mean, the bit, the big part of the experience, of course, that which was new to me was the financial side of things. This, the um, everything creative uh, was things that I've already been involved in. Really, you know, working with uh, the creative heads of department, with the director of photography, with the costume designer, makeup and hair designers, um, the designer, production designer. Those are people who I interact with anyway on, on a daily basis when I'm working as an actor. And um, that creative conversation I already have with them to an extent, not to the depth of the extent you do have as a director, but as an actor, you have some interaction with the designer and what your what your house might look like or, you know. Um, and with the DP, of course, you're working with him or her on a daily basis, uh, trying to understand the shot and, and how to act best in that shot. So though that part of the whole experience was as thrilling as I thought it would be. And I really looked forward to being part of the creative process from start to finish, as opposed to normally I, I just take part in the middle part of it, in the shoot. But to be part of the pre-production, to be finding the locations, to be discussing um, with the designer how they might look, how they should feel, and then working with the costume designer and the makeup and hair designer in the same way, how to storytell especially in a story like this that takes place between the late 40s and the 90s. You know, we've got a huge swathe of period through the film, and I wanted that to be subtle, but I wanted it to be correct, and I wanted it to, to not be noticeable, really. And I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I think that is the case when you watch the film. It doesn't... I don't think you come away with it thinking, oh, that was a great period film. The period's there and, and right, but really not in your face. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a testament to their skill and uh, their work. So that side of stuff was was just thrilling and exciting. How about casting? Casting, I thought, was... I mean, I was very lucky in that um, Dakota and Jennifer were both on board. Mm -hmm. They were both cast when I was cast Mm -hmm. um, on the project to begin with. So I sort of inherited them, thank goodness. My first job as director after after um, Tom Rosenberg told me that I could uh, direct the movie was to go and meet with both of them and ask them if they would stay on. Yeah. And... um, so that I, that was a, that was my first nervous moment, but it was I was lucky that they both did, and um, goodness me, they both deliver and really it's an extraordinary. They're both giving extraordinary performances in this film, so um, I was very lucky there. And then the other parts was was an, an, an interesting process. Peter Regit we cast as my father, and that 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 was that was somebody who meant a great deal to me. He was in a movie with my uncle Dennis Lawson back in the eighties, a movie called Local Hero, and um, Although I didn't know him very well, I'd met him maybe once or twice, he was sort of part of our family lore. You know, I was a kid when that film came out and my uncle was in that movie and uh, we we used to visit the location where they shot that movie and um, on our summer holidays. And so uh, he was some quite important character in my life and I thought the idea of casting him as my, in, as my father in this movie was a beautiful sort of full circle in some way and it was lovely and, and, uh, and worked really, really well. There's some really nice looks and moments between us that really don't need any words or dialogue and and uh, I'm, uh, that's because of my admiration of him and um and 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 he was happy to be part of the movie well, you know across the board we had really wonderful actors Valerie Curry who plays Rita 
gives an extraordinary brave and mature performance and Uzu Aduba um, is, is, a, is a lovely addition to the movie plays my secretary and there's also a nice relation there between us um, I like your DP a lot by the way yeah Martin Rua yeah. brilliant yes. how did you decide on him was he part of the project as well already or he wasn't you, no, no okay. I had three I had sort of a short list of three DPs I think by the time we you know we'd explored um crewing up early uh, early on in prep and there was there was two dps who i'd worked with before um one i'd worked with twice one i'd seen work with a actor who was also directing which i thought was and i liked the way he did that and um and then martin and it was really i mean martin uh, shot a film called control, control for anton corbin which is really a spectacular piece of filmmaking and um and went on to shoot the american with anton and uh but it was a film, an independent film that he made called Martin Brown, hmm. um, starring Michael Caine, that clinched it for me. I was watching it because I, I, I needed somebody who was going to be a partner. I've seen too many first-time directors fall out with their DP on set, and it's really awful when it happens. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want that to happen to me. And I can understand um, how it could be frustrating for a DP to be working with somebody who's a first-time director who's going to make mistakes, who's going to ask for shots that don't make sense, you know. I needed somebody who was going to work with me on storytelling. And I've got a sense of shots. I've been working in front of a camera for 23 years, so it's not like I'm a novice. I know I know my way around there. But um, I still needed somebody who was going to be totally on my side and, and help me with storytelling. And that's really... I wanted to be economical in this. I wanted the film not to be too cutty I wanted it to look classical and beautiful and I wanted the acting to be front and centre as opposed to sort of the filmmaking I'm much more I'm an actor so I'm, I'm uh, that's sort of what thrills me and drives me and with Martin in this film um, Harry Brown there's a sequence at the beginning of the movie it's maybe like eight, eight or nine shots that um, introduce us to um, Michael Caine's character and there's shots of him he's waking up in a bed he rolls over, there's another shot of him in bed. We see him looking at a clock, and round about the clock are there's some pills, and then there's a picture of his wife, who's obviously not in the bed with him, so we maybe he's an older man, we assume maybe she's passed away. And then there's a shot from under the bed of his feet coming down on the floor, mm. and, and a shot of him cooking breakfast and eating breakfast. And there was, you just knew, you knew everything about, about him. immediately, yeah. Without a word of dialogue, because of his beautiful photography, the framing was so spectacular. And, and, and of course Michael Caine's such a wonderful actor you just knew everything you needed to know about that character and you were off and into the story mm -hmm. and when I watched those, that opening of that movie I just knew I thought this, this is who I need and so um, that's how we chose him Well now that you've got one under your belt are you excited to, to make more movies? Did this one scare you off? No <laughs> it process, or you... I mean what it taught me was that it's, it's very costly it is an enormous amount of um, I mean, it's obvious. It takes a long time. It takes much longer than an, than an acting job. You know, I can be in and out on, a, on acting in a movie in three months, two, three, four months. This was 16 months of my life. But on top of that, it's an extraordinary focus, really, from the word go, from the moment Tom said, you can direct American Pastoral till my last day in the sound mix, was just total focus on the story and, and every aspect of it. And that gives you a great deal of satisfaction, but it's also sort of a bit like, you know, brain damage. You're just walking around <laughs> thinking about this one story, and mm -hmm. you're trying to be a, trying to be a dad and a husband and all other things, and and really your brain is just thinking about the story all day. Mm -hmm. um, so I realised that that's quite costly, and you don't want you couldn't you couldn't I couldn't imagine you know dedicating that amount of time and energy to something that I didn't have to tell yeah. like I, I sort of had to tell the story of American Pastoral because through that, those three years when I was attached to it as an actor as it start, started to slip away I realised I couldn't let it slip away and it was the story I needed to tell and for 15 years of wanting to direct I've always said to people I only want to direct because I've got a story that I really need to tell and that's what happened here so um I, goodness, I hope there is another one because mm -hmm. I really I loved being and being the the creative experience was so fulfilling and wonderful that I would want to do that again. But I can't. But I have to wait till the next story till I find it or it finds me or, um, and then then I would throw myself at it again. Yeah. Well, I just want to switch gears a little bit here. Uh, you've been busy, man. Uh, you played Jesus this year, mm -hmm. <laughs> which I've always I don't even know if I have a question here, but I've always sort of wanted to like. 
write a book or something where you talk to people like Willem Dafoe yeah. and Jim Caviezel and yourself, yeah. like people that have taken on that role because it's 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 a heady role to get into, I imagine. Yeah. So uh, this film was Last Days in the Desert, Rodrigo Garcia, Chivo Lebeski, the great Chivo Lebeski shooting the film. Mm-hmm. What uh, was that experience like for you? Oh, it was really special. It was um, It was a very important film for me. I don't know... It was important, the idea of making it before we shot it. The actual shoot was beautiful and an incredibly unique experience working with Rodrigo and, and Chivo and the other actors there in the, in the desert just southeast of here, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was very meaningful somehow. And then, and then the actual movie itself, I think, is quite unique and beautiful. It's got a completely original pace and tone, and I'm very proud of it. I love it very much. Is there um, something daunting about that character to yes. play that I mean just totally yeah. yeah it's completely like sleepless nights for weeks <laughs> <and then. laughs> I imagine yeah and then you realize of course you, you, most of the things that are keeping you up are things that I wouldn't normally worry about most of the things are how are people going to perceive it how are, what are people going to think I know I never worry about those kind of things usually I, I'm much more interested in how am I going to play it and how, who is this man and how does he feel to be and how does he think when he looks at things those are really what I normally concentrate on not, not from the outside what will it look like or how will people, what will people think and I, I believed in the script I didn't believe there was I, I believed really completely in the script there was nothing um, controversial about it or I just felt like it was a beautiful story that Rodrigo had invented about Christ in the desert meeting this family and um Really, it was an exploration of fathers and sons. It was, it was, that's really, to me, all it was about. I mean, I think sometimes Christ is the son of God and other times he's the father of the child and there's a father to the child and so th- sometimes he feels like the son to that father. It was, every scene to me felt like that's what we were exploring. Right. And so there was something deep and, and interesting underneath all of these beautifully spare scenes. And... Um, uh, with Rodrigo's direction, it was a great joy to do. It was very, very beautiful. Like it was really pure acting, and mm-hmm. we had time and space to to uh, to to create this beautiful movie in a short space of time. In five weeks, we did it. Um, but goodness me, it's a lovely piece of work. It's very, it's very different from anything I've done before. Yeah. But yeah, as you uh, your question about playing Jesus is quite daunting. And then and then I and I started reading books, and I was reading all these books that sort of disprove the son of God part of Jesus's mm-hmm. story. And this is probably who he really was. And this is pro- there was other preachers and this and that. And I realized as I was reading them that they were entirely unhelpful because I was to be playing Jesus, who is the son of God, who's in the desert trying to communicate with his father and is being frustrated that he's not able to do so. So um, I put all those books aside and I started thinking about a son, uh, a man who is having problems communicating with his dad mm. and I love and get on very well with my father so however I am a son of a father and I could <laughs> I could sort of I could recognize some of those some of those um ideas in there and uh, once I started focusing on that it became much easier cool mm-hmm. and then uh Don Cheadle yes uh miles ahead you must have just felt like you were on set with Miles Davis I did every yeah. day on that film I keep saying to people I did this great film with Miles Davis uh Don Cheadle <laughs> I mean I did every time because Partly I made a film with Don Cheadle and partly I made a film with Miles Davis. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was so convincing, um, Don, in that role. And also he's he's an actor who stays in character between takes. And um, so I was sort of directed by Miles Davis, which isn't easy because <laughs> Miles Davis wasn't quite as nice a guy as Don Cheadle is. So, right. <laughs> a lot of my acting notes came from Miles, you know. No, man, what are you doing? Do it like this. Um, but it was great fun. Again, it was an incredibly um, brave um, endeavor by Don because he has a very short amount of time yeah. to shoot the movie and a little amount of money to make it for and uh, you know due to his talents and the talents of his crew he nailed it I think it's a really brilliant film it's really a movie about music and it's a musical movie it's mm-hmm. quite quite brilliant yeah. uh, in, in, its, in its, its flavor again quite unique and also a directorial debut for yeah. him so did you guys compare notes well I, I did it before we shot Miles before I even know, knew yeah. I was going to direct well before. Um, American Pastoral. So, um, but I did watch him like a hawk while we were watch- working because I'd never been directed by the actor before. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it was interesting. It was different for me in a way. And uh, you know, there's a sort of unwritten rule in acting that you never and and people who are actors should listen to this that you never tell the other actor what to do. I would never dream of it. It's, it's a big no-no. You know, you give you you speak to the director about what you are about, and um, the other actor gives you what they're going to give you, and you have to roll with that. You know, but in this situation. And in my situation, of course, you do have to tell the other actor what to do. It's your job because you're directing and acting. And so it's a bit awkward for the first few scenes and uh, for you to tell, you know, to give ideas to the other actor, but also for the other actor to get those ideas from their acting partner is a bit a bit strange. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have to be delicate with that to begin with. And then I, what I think in my experience, I hope, and certainly in my experience with Don, was that it becomes a very inclusive thing. You know, the actors feel very much part of the work that you're creating. I had really strong ideas about what I, what I wanted to do, and Martin Rua and I spent many hours and days um, planning scenes, talking about how they should feel, how, they, how we might shoot them. Is this scene going to be shot in one shot? I wanted to do that with some of the scenes. Um, is this a scene that needs a lot of coverage? And we really mapped out a sort of pre-idea that I would have, say, okay, I could be over here, say Dakota's there, and we would come up with shots, you know. And we had that uh, that plan, but it was always understood that that plan was going to change when we got on set, and we we needed to have the guts and the freedom to change it if we wanted. And and we did, and we would mo we would mainly start off in a scene just with me and the other actors in the room alone. It was quite odd at first because we'd say, the first assistant would say, okay clear the set for the director and the actors and everyone would leave and it would just be me and Jennifer or me and Dakota and I'd be looking over my shoulder for the director till I realized it was, <laughs> it was me. And um, so then we would work on the scene and because I would always start saying, look, this is what I imagined. This is what my thought was. What do you think? And we would try it and then we would add to it or change it or sometimes just leave it as it was. And then we would get Martin to come in and have a look at it and we would decide on the shots. And um, but But because of that process, I think the actors felt, I hope so, felt really involved in the creating of these scenes, you know. I, I know as an actor I never like to walk on a set and be told what I'm doing. I don't like to be shown what the, sta what the, the stand in has done with the director right. before I've arrived. Well, he was over there, so there's your mark, and he walks over there. And I think, well, you should just have got the stand in to do the part then, because I'm not a sort of puppet, you know. Um, so I would never direct like that, and I didn't. And um, I think it makes the actors feel I love it as an as an actor when you're when you're involved in in the creating of a scene and creatively yeah. involved in that. Yeah, uh, you get asked about Star Wars all the time, so I apologize up front. It's all right, but I think this is a different question. Uh, you know, <clears throat> your work in those movies is nothing if not immortal, just by nature of that enterprise. Uh, Obviously, I think the new Lucasfilm and Kathy Kennedy, they're kind of stewards of your work now. They are going to, the movies they're making now are going to just ensure that this franchise continues to live on. Long after you're gone, essentially, your Obi-Wan Kenobi is going to be etched in stone. And I would imagine that part of the artist's goal is to have some form of longevity. So do you ever think about your work in Star Wars with that in mind? Is that kind of trippy to just know that the image you struck in that movie, the performance you gave the role you helped carve out is going to have such a life for so long. I don't spend any time thinking about it at all. Um, yeah. Not really. But, um, I mean, it is a peculiar, it is unique in that respect. It mm -hmm. is a film that keeps getting seen. Yeah. And, I know, and, I, and, and usually with each new film, I think people go back to the old films again. It seems like that. I guess... I mean, I don't, I don't fully understand it. I'm not sure quite how George did it, uh, or because because it strikes into the minds of young kids all over the world all the time, and and it it's it's still as big for little kids now as it was for me when I was little. Yeah, and that's I don't really understand how he managed to do that. It's really part of our fabric somehow, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in a way that other movies aren't. I don't, I don't begin to understand how he managed to do that. I'm very happy to be part of it. I, I always felt like that. I was, I was enormously excited to be part of them. Um, and I'm very happy to be in them. I found that I've always been open about the, pr the process was not easy for me. I didn't, sure. I didn't like the blue screen environment that it became. You know, the first, the first one we shot had lots of sets and, and was, and, and the, the more they went on, episode two and three, 
became more and more like working in a big blue space or a big green space. You mm -hmm. know, we'd finish set, we'd work on one stage and they'd go, okay, we're in the wrong stage. Go to stage five and we'd leave one big green empty space to go over onto stage five, which was a big blue empty space, <laughs> you know. And it was months of it. And um, I found that difficult as an actor. It's just not, I mean, it's much easier to be in a set that's the right set with actors and who are the right actors. And um, yeah. However, it sort of hones a skill. It's another skill. You still have to be believable in those films. You still have to portray a character. And I and I hope I did Alec Guinness proud, or just to, I hope I, you know, I didn't let him down because I was trying to portray him as a young man, and that was an interesting experience to to go back to watch lots of Alec Guinness's early work, which was thrilling because I, I came across lots of films that I hadn't seen before. One of which was called The Card, which I just adore. Mm. Um, and I got to see his early work and then try and bring sort of me, try and bring me and the young Alec Guinness together somehow to do what I did in, in those films. And, um, you know, I hope I did, I hope I did him justice there. I know a lot of people would love to see you. <clears throat> you've addressed it before. Uh, do like an Obi-Wan movie. Yeah. Here's my pitch. And Luke, this is for Lucasfilm. This is for free. Okay. Get you and Rodrigo and Chivo back together. Go back out into the desert. <laughs> we do Tatooine. Shoot, where, where, where was I? Shoot the Obi Wan in the desert movie. Very minimal. Maybe he brings out a lightsaber to like cook something, and then that's the one time you see a lightsaber. Light a cigar or something. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It'd be just this minimalist Star Wars movie. People would not know what hit them. Yeah, that could be trippy. That could be cool. All right, I'll, I'll speak to my people. There you go. Okay. Uh, Moulin Rouge. 15 years ago. Oh, is it? Can you believe that? Oh, my goodness. 15 years ago this year. Yes, that's right. That's right. Well, no, I mean, that, that talk about feeling in the right place at the right time. That was extraordinary. Like, working on those sets was like being in the Moulin Rouge uh, mm. in Paris, although we were in Australia. It was an extraordinary experience. I was talking about it recently with somebody, um, just how amazing it is to work with music and with uh, and to work with somebody as fantastical and imaginative as Baz Luhrmann and his his partner, uh, Catherine Martin, who's his designer and production designer and costume designer. Um, it's really wonderful. I and think it's one of the best films of the decade. I, I know, mean, it's, it's a real it's beauty. Phenomenal. And we worked, the work on it was phenomenal. We worked on it for months before we started shooting. I mean, we were all there for, we did a two week workshop and then we went away. And then six months later we came back. I mean, that two week workshop was like working songs and movement a bit and then we presented it like a play reading to all the creative people but it was like a real event it was like a show you know mm -hmm. and then we all went away six months later we came back and we started rehearsals and the rehearsals were I think three or four months we did dancing every day singing every day um, working on scenes the scenes were totally constantly being rewritten work we would we would do on scenes would then be incorporated into the next draft so we really felt as actors that we were being involved in the whole process. We had long chat, you know, discussions with Baz about even storyline, about what happened with the prince at the end and mm -hmm. or the duke at the end. Um, and then we started to shoot. And, and by the time we started to shoot, it was completely second nature to break into song or break into a dance, it, it, which is why it's seamless in a way. It doesn't have that awkward, oh, now we're in a song moment right. that a lot of musicals have. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting genre that I think could be explored in more creative ways. Uh, there's a film this year, La La Land, that that does it in just a brilliant way. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. I remember at the time. I remember at the time that it came out, um, Hedvig and the Angry Inch also came out. Yes, and it was a it was a musical movie, mm -hmm. and I felt very much at the time that uh, that was. I thought, oh god, that this. I really felt like musical movies were back. I thought with Moulin Rouge and Hedwig. I thought that this is the start of something new because I felt like Hedwig really had a contemporary, it was completely modern musical on film. It was brilliant. Um, and ours was big and colorful and, 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 and enormous. And I felt like it was going to spark off a new wave of musicals, which hasn't really happened. Yeah. And um, I wished it would. I'd like to try, I'd like to try and do, I mean, there, there's a, the, the Irish film Once. Mm -hmm. I, again, that's, that's that I think has a that's where we could go with it where where it doesn't have to be huge and they don't have to be numbers it can just be we could incorporate music as part of the storytelling yeah organically organically yeah. and in a contemporary way and in a small way like once which is so moving it's, yeah. and and simple like there's no 
explanation for anything. She's, yeah. You know, you can see as she's walking down from the shop, going back to her flat, you can see people, kids in the street looking in the camera and it just doesn't matter, you know. I think I, I'm, I'm inspired by that kind of thing. So I'd love to be part of more musical work on film. I think it would be amazing. And then last thing here, uh, Train Spotting 2. Yeah. You know, obviously a huge fan base for that first film. In fact, I think... I think people are just nervous at the at the idea of a, of a sequel to a film that they love. So, yeah. what can you tell them to assuage any kind of uh, nerves they might oh, have? I don't know. <laughs> Be afraid. Be very afraid. <laughs> I don't know. Working with Danny again. I mean, oh, it was amazing to work with Danny again yeah. and the boys and all, everyone. It was great to be back. It was a sort of very. We each talked about it. Johnny and you and Bremner and Robert Carlyle. We talked about. The, stepping back in their shoes of Renton and Spud and Sick Boy and Begbie was sort of a little scary the idea that maybe you wouldn't be able to get back in there or you know trying to be back in the skin of a character you last played 20 years ago before you knew a lot of the things you know now too in the business as well and just how how you perform and and just your trade and your craft and everything all of that kind of makes you a different person now it makes you a different person and then and also you just because of this um, because of the love people have for the film the love that we have for the film and how important the movie was in in terms of the movie in movie history and in terms of for all of our careers it was a big it's a big deal and we all felt very protective over the original film and so there was a sort of trepidation about getting back in there and, and would we be able to do it and would it, would it feel right? Would it? But then, of course, all of those worries somehow fit so beautifully into the minds of the characters in the movie that John Hodges was so brilliantly crafted that it was never an issue. Once we started the first, once we all had our first scene done, we were all back, you know, and it felt really good. It felt really easy. It was like, um, it was like meeting an old friend again. Um, where time doesn't really you, you might not have seen each other for 10 years but in actual fact when you start chatting it doesn't feel like a day's yeah. past yeah. it was like that and it was great to be back on set with Danny who I've missed and uh, you know I loved all the work I did with him Yeah, it's some of the most important work that I've ever done for me and um, so I've sort of missed working with him over these years and, and it felt really good to be back on set with him awesome well, I can't wait to see that Yeah, I could talk to you about a number of other things like Beauty and the Beast being oh, yeah. a part of that and stuff but I don't want to take too much more of your time but oh. do, do tell me have you recorded your part for that already yes how was we that did, uh, we did it we've done it l- lovely lo- luckily several times we yeah. did it while they were shooting the film um, in London a y- over a year ago mm-hmm. and uh and then, of course, since they finished the film, we've gone back and done it. And we do, you know, I, I'm... You're playing I'm part, Lumiere. I'm part of Lumiere, the, the Candelabra. Yes. And uh, so we play, We did have some real live action on set as well as being mm-hmm. animated. So we got to record the role, act in the role, and then I had uh, some musical numbers to record too, which was great. It was nice to sing again. That'll be fun, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, great, man. Well, congrats on the movie. Thank you. And good luck with it as it goes out into the marketplace. Yeah, American Pastoral. And uh, thanks for being a guest on my podcast, man. I appreciate it. My great pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Remember to subscribe and check back next week. You've been listening to Playback at Variety. 